Jesus, obviously, God, both, believe that worship is so incredibly important. I mean, so incredibly important. In fact, if you think about it, you could actually say that we exist, the the reason for our existence is ultimately for the end that we may uh, praise and worship God. And you may say, well, I thought... Uh, The purpose in life was to know God. Well, in knowing God, a natural byproduct of knowing God is worshiping Him. And God takes worship so incredibly seriously. It is so important. And we're going to see just how important it is in here. But knowing that God takes worship, and, and in the Old Testament, idolatry, hypocrisy, and worship were all met with a very harsh, strict judgment. God took worship of him very very seriously and and it's no different today we we still worship the same god um, throughout generations he is one he is the same god today yesterday and forever and he still takes worship very seriously and even though i love this scripture what it does is, is it reminds us of what god said real true authentic genuine worship is to be about and and honestly if you're if we're going to be honest we need this We need these reminders in our life from God's Word to tell us what is true. What what does the architect of life say that life is supposed to look like? What does the architect of marriage say marriage is supposed to look like? It's important for us to go to the source to be able to determine and get back in that plumb line with what God says is right. And the truth is, we can turn and morph and make worship into something that it was never intended or desired by God to be. So this morning, we're going back to these beautiful, fantastic teachings of Jesus on worship to say, God, what am I making worship out to be? Is what I consider worship what you consider worship? Because this morning we're going to learn that not all worship is is created equal. Just because we deem it worship does not mean it is acceptable to God. You know, if you you think about this, we're we're talking this morning about this Samaritan woman. Um, Obviously, many of you know the Samaritans and the Jews had no dealings together. The Jews did not like the Samaritans. Uh, The Samaritans did not like the Jews. The Jews considered the Samaritans a religious half-breed. In fact, um, this scripture is so powerful because Jesus, a Jew, a rabbi, uh, would have most definitely followed, you would think, the tradition of many of the other religious leaders. And in their, their hatred and bitterness towards the Samaritans, when they would travel, they would walk outside of the bounds of Samaria. They didn't even want to step inside the bounds and Samaria, of course, laid right in the middle, um, cut the cut most of the country in half. So they would go out of their way in order to travel around Samaria. But Jesus in John chapter four says that he has to go through Samaria. He said, I must go through Samaria. And instead of taking that long journey out around to escape Samaria, he walked literally right through the heart of it. And he finds a woman, a Samaritan woman, an outcast, even in her own society. She was an outcast among outcasts, if you consider that, from a Jew's perspective. And Jesus goes and strikes up a conversation with this woman at the well. And as he's having this conversation, he reveals to her in very clear terms that he is the Messiah. Something that he did not even reveal to Jews. 
This morning he gives us a real glimpse, a real picture of what true worship is to look like. And the beautiful thing, he did not reveal it in Rome. He did not reveal it to Pilate. He did not reveal it to the religious leaders. He did not reveal it to the high priest. And he did not even reveal it on on his own soil, if you will. He revealed it to an outcast of an outcast. He revealed this awesome truth, unveiled to the world what true worship is. To a little woman who was insignificant to the Jews and insignificant to even her own people. What an awesome God we serve. What an amazing God that he would take this woman who everybody else had overlooked. And deemed that she was so important to him that he would tell her secrets that he had not told anybody else in such clear terms. We serve a God who is definitely, definitely meek and humble. I want you to see in in John chapter 4 verse 20. The woman says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship, excuse me, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Wow! This revealing, unveiling of what true worship is. Go back for just a moment to what He says in verse number 23. The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers... Jesus is saying if there is such thing as a true worshiper, there is also such thing as a false worshiper. And he says there is coming a day, and now is, where the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Notice this next line. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. Think about that. Before we dive into God is spirit, before we dive into the spirit and truth thing, think about what Jesus has just said about His Father. He said, my Father is seeking people to worship Him like that. There is coming a day, and now is, Jesus said, when they will worship in spirit and in truth. And my Father is seeking those, seeking such who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. We are going to talk about worship, but just take a moment and and lift your eyes up for just a, a brief consideration of that word, seeking. What Jesus is telling us is is literally pulling back the curtains and giving us a revelation of the very heart of God. I told you that God is passionate in in, in loving worship. He is deserving of worship. He is desirous of true worship. But what Jesus says is something we would never really be able to know had He not revealed it to us. He said the Father is seeking such to worship Him. And for those of you that may be familiar with the New Testament, 
you're probably familiar of something else God seeks. Do you remember in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus said that the Son of Man, He Himself, has come to do what? To seek and to save that which is lost. Luke 19.10 tells me that God is pursuing passionately lost mankind. That means that God is, is, is exerting resources, is, is throwing resources at the lost in an attempt to be able to engage them with the hope of the gospel. He is passionately pursuing those that are lost. That word seek is the same word used to describe Jesus' passionate pursuit of lost people. So what Jesus is saying is just as God is passionate, just as I am passionate about reaching the lost and and finding them and saving them as a shepherd does his lost sheep, he is saying that God is just as passionate about finding true worshipers. What an awesome thing to consider. He doesn't just love true worship in theory. His eyes are going throughout all of the world looking and seeking and finding people who are true worshipers. Nobody would doubt that anything so close to God's heart would both be a source of great joy when it is found and a source of great sorrow or grief when it is not found. In our life, those things that are so passionate to us, when we find them, when we grab them, when we engage them, it is a source of great joy for us. But when we look and we do not find them, it is also a source of great grief. Jesus is saying that God is not just seeking to save the lost, but He's looking for true worshipers. Only God is the one that can see in the man's heart, and that is truly the source from where all true worship begins. It's the heart. God, in finding the king, told the prophet that God does not look on the outward appearance as man does. But God looks at the heart. God looks beyond our words, beyond our hands, beyond our posture, and looks directly to the posture of our heart. God, the same God that sought you passionately to bring you to faith in Christ, is continually, passionately pursuing and looking and perusing for signs of true worship from our lives. That's how important it is to God. Notice the second thing. God's nature. Number two. God's nature teaches us about worship. God's nature teaches us about worship. I think it's important that we realize that those two things go hand in hand. To understand who God is changes our worship. The, the object in which we worship changes us, if you think about it. Consider this with me for just one moment. In the Bible, you find a, a false god named Molech. Molech demanded human sacrifices. People would literally offer their children on the, through the fire of Molech. That was a part of their, their love for Molech, was to even offer their own children in sacrifice for him. Can you imagine? And when you read the Scriptures, you find out how violent those people were. Why were they violent? Because they were worshiping this violent idea of this false god. Go to the Sadducees. 
Go to the religious leaders in Scripture. What was their problem? Their problem was that their religion was void of a religion of the heart and was only a religion of the law. How did they view God? They view God as a God of justice. They struggled understanding a God of mercy and grace. The God that they worshipped altered their lifestyle so that they were also not merciful and graceful. Go to the book of Acts. When the apostle went to the college town of the day and stood and beheld all of their idols, he even brought attention to the one Mark, the unknown God. There were, so many, there were so many gods there that they were even worshiping one who did not have a name just in case they missed one along the way. Their worship was so futile that they even worshiped an unknown God. That our view of God ultimately changes and alters us. So why is worship so important? One, it's important to God. Secondly, it's important to us because it's a good barometer of my relationship with Jesus Christ. It it helps reflect who I believe He is. And the Bible tells us, Jesus says two things I want us to draw attention to. One is, if God's nature teaches us about worship, notice in that text I read to you, Jesus refers to God as Father three times. Three times. When I am worshiping God, we're going to get to what that looks like in a moment, but when I am in worship to God, it ought to have a paternal, relational aspect to it. I ought to be able to worship Him as one who has tended to me and taken care of me and provided for me. I ought to be able to worship Him in a relationship with a bond that is as great as a father is to a son and a son is to a God. Part of my worship ought to have within it its DNA, a feeling of dependence and reliance on Him. Jesus, in speaking of worship and in revealing, unveiling this awesome truth about worship, he refers to God as Father three times. You know, creation can worship God as creator. The trees will clap their hands. The mountains recognize His majesty, the seas bend even in recognition and adoration of Him, the Scriptures tell us. Creation can worship Him as Creator. But only a born-again child of God can worship Him as Father. That is a crucial element to know who we are worshiping. As born-again children of God, He is my heavenly Father, notice the second description given to us in our text. He says, God is spirit. God is spirit. I believe your King James Version say God is a spirit. A better translation is what we have here. God is spirit. He is not one among many spirits. He is spirit. Speaking of his his makeup, speaking of his, his nature, speaking of his essence, if you will. That's what God is saying. Now, what does that mean for us? God is spirit. What does that mean to the text? What is Jesus trying to communicate? Well, do you remember in this story? This woman was despised by the Jews. There was this, this separation between these two cultures. And she says, my father's worshipped on this mountain Gerizim. 
This is where my father's worshiped. We even have our own mountain. We have our own holy place. We have our own temple. We have our own place. And we, she says, worship God here. You worship in Jerusalem, but we worship on this mount. And what does Jesus say? God is spirit. You know what Jesus is telling this woman? When Jesus says God is spirit, it is in response. It is to counteract this teaching that she could worship God over here and they could worship over there and one person is right and the other person is wrong. What Jesus is saying when he says God is spirit is that God is unbound. God is not bound to your mountain. God is not bound to our mountain. There are places where God allows His glory to dwell, but He is not bound by that. That is one of the great rules of Him as a creator. If God is ultimately the creator of all things, then He is bound by none of the things in which He created. If He was bound by the things in which He was created, He would be no greater than the things in which He's created. But He is He created, He made them, He put them all into existence. That means, by law, that He is above and unbound and unlimited by the things in which He created. What He is telling Him is, it's not about that mountain, it's not about that mountain, God is spirit. You can worship Him right here. He is not bound, He is not limited, He is not held up. Isn't it funny some of the things that we think, some of the ways we may deceive ourselves to bind up God? To think that God can only work in this church from, from Sunday mornings from 9.15 to 11.30? God is not bound to work here. God is not bound to work on my timeline. God is not bound to work within the, the, the parameters that I place on Him. He's Creator. He is outside of all things that He has created. He is not stuck or limited to or controlled by the things in which He created. And He's telling this woman, He is Father and He is Spirit. He is limitless. Wow. What a great concept. I've ran into many people in the ministry that say, I don't need to go to church. I can worship God in this field. I can worship God on the golf course. I can worship God fishing. I can worship God for my hunting blind. I can worship God while doing dishes. Is that true? Yes. Here's the problem. In an attempt to show that they can worship God anywhere, they have almost become part of the same problem that they're recognizing. You see, they think we come here and the only reason we come here is to worship because God is here. You know the great thing? He is spirit. He is not bound by these four walls. Can you worship doing the dishes? Absolutely. Can you worship from a hunting blind? Yes. But let me tell you something. You know what we do here? If this is the only time you and I worship, what weak, pathetic, anemic Christian existence do we have? Guys, we don't come here just to worship. 
That this is not my weekly worship of God. This is where we come together as a family. We've been worshiping all week, doing dishes, hunting, fishing, golf course, out in the field, driving to work, sitting at our desk. We've been worshiping all week, and we come here to the first day of the week and come together as a family, and we praise His name together, corporately, collectively, all of us together. Lifting our voices in an anthem together of praise because of what God has done all week. We serve Him, yes. We we worship Him, yes. We give to Him. But this is not, I hope, the only time we've worshipped. I hope we've worshipped. Through the good and the bad. I hope we've worshipped at the kitchen table and the bedside of our children. I hope we have worshipped in every avenue of our life and seen and grabbed a hold of the heart of God in every one of those moments so that when we walk into this place, our hearts are about to explode of all that we have engaged in God through the week. And we come into this place, and you know what? When your heart is full of praise, there are a whole lot of things that it's not full of. If your heart is truly full of praise, it's not going to be full of bitterness. If your heart is truly full of praise and excitement and anticipation over worshiping God with your brothers and sisters, that fullness is going to push a lot of other things out. There are a lot of things I'm not going to care about. I'm going to want to come in and see my brothers and sisters and side by side, shoulder to shoulder, heart to heart, voice to voice, lift my voice up to God with other people who have been redeemed and changed through the week. Amen? God is spirit. He's not bound on that mountain or that mountain. He is not bound by His creation. Notice this third and final thing. God is spirit, but aren't you glad that Jesus came as the manifestation of God? We get to see God in Jesus. Number three, God shows us what is acceptable worship. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. 24, God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. All worship is not equal. Must means I am no longer allowed to define worship my own way. Think about that for a minute. Those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. What Jesus is saying is we're not allowed to define worship the way we want to. There are certain components that must be present for us to call it true worship. Hence, real plastic. Plastic is man-made. Plastic is artificial. Plastic is a substitute. We can do it even in the very thing that is nearest to the heart of God. Notice this first description. They must worship him in spirit. This seems only fitting that we would worship him in spirit since he is a spirit as well. What does this mean? If it is so important, what does it mean for us to worship God in spirit? Throughout the New Testament, you find this battle between spirit and truth. Excuse me, spirit and flesh. Flesh represents sin Flesh represents that which is tangible. Flesh represents that which is of the earth. Spirit represents the renewed, the, 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 the transformed life within us that is drawn to the very heart of God. To put it easily, this is what the psalmist considered deep calls unto deep. That's what he referred to it as, deep calling unto deep. 
This is our heart grabbing a hold of God's heart. Now think about this. If he is talking about the Spirit, he is not talking about the flesh. He is separating from this all of the things that we do not need in order to worship. We do not need certain things, tangible things, in order to worship God. Just as God is Spirit is not needed to be worshipped on this mountain or that mountain alone, if I am worshipping God in Spirit, I, the, there are tangible things that are not necessary. Now don't get me wrong. A guitar may help some people. Words, certain words may help some people. Certain surroundings may help some people. And even though things may aid our worship, they are not subser- worship is not subservient to those things. We don't have to have those things in order to worship. If you go back to the Scriptures, some of the people that had some of their greatest encounters with God were, were, had nothing around them. Some of the most beautiful psalms that David ever wrote were in the cave as he was hiding for his life. Remember, Job had absolutely nothing but ashes in his hand as he sat in ashes, as he praised God, who was unchangeable. John wrote the book of Revelation and had one of his greatest encounters with God while in exile on the island of Patmos. Apostles were praising and worshiping God in the middle of a jail cell, being confined for nothing that they had done wrong. We feel that we need things. We feel that we have to have certain things in order for us to worship when the truth of the matter is we don't. To truly worship, all I have to have is my heart connecting with God's heart. To engage God from the deepest part of who I am. He doesn't just say to worship Him in spirit. He says in truth. What does that mean? Obedience. Obedience. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. Jesus said, if you come and bring your gift before the altar and you realize that a brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar, go your way, reconcile to your brother, then come back and offer, offer your gift. In John chapter four, 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, John says that if we say that we love God but we hate our brother, we are a liar. We can't truly worship God if our heart has hate. What we should be able to remember is that worship is so awesome to God. It's something that we should never take lightly. It's something that is so incredibly serious to God to the point that He is pursuing and looking and seeking. So in our life, let me ask you, are we worshiping God truly? What do I feel I need to have in order to worship God? Because ultimately, anything other than God Himself, I don't need. I don't need it. Charles Spurgeon said, It is no credit to God to be praised by a man of no character. What does my life look like? Am I simply just moving my mouth and allowing wind to pass through my vocal cords? Is that what I'm doing or do I mean the words that I'm saying? Do I mean what's coming out of my mouth? Is what comes out here matched up with what starts in here? God is the one that is able to see. From my perspective, it may look great. It may sound great. But to God, it may be repulsive. I want to come to this time of invitation. I want to draw this down. Where does God stand in your life? Right now, where does God stand in your life? What do you feel you need in order to worship God? We're getting ready to sing, carry on with the remainder of our service this morning. What do you feel? Do you need you have to do you believe you have to have these words? Do you believe you have to have a certain instrument? Do you believe it has to be a certain posture? Or this morning as we prepare to respond to God, do you believe 
that all you need in worship is him. To know him. And I'm going to ask you as we prepare to worship, as we prepare to respond, what is your decision? Maybe you've got stuff on your heart that you need to take care of. Maybe you have issues with brothers or sisters in the church and you don't want to say a word to God that you don't mean. Maybe this morning you know that you've got sin going on in your life and you don't want to lift praise up to Him while your life doesn't support it. How can you really sing God your Lord and Savior while you're walking willfully in sin? Those don't go together. Incongruent. What decision do you have? Salvation today, the first day you worship Him as Father rather than as Creator? Today, maybe, is this the, play, is this the time that God has called you to join and be a part of this local assembly? Baptism, rededication. What's God doing? Let's get our hearts prepared for the second part of worship.